Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll be reading from there in just a minute, but um, I wanted to begin just kind of talking about something that is dear to many of you, and that's coffee. Um, I'm curious, and really, I'm not a coffee snob. Uh, I'm, for me, coffee is just a vehicle for cream. That's, that's all it is. It's a, any opportunity to get more cream in your life, why wouldn't you want to do that? And, and I'm, I'm, if I'm a snob at all, it's about the cream. I mean, I like the whole, real, f- full cream, whatever, whatever, I don't know, comes in the Costco, the big thing, whatever, but cream, real cream, like thick, like, like uh, oatmeal type thick cream. Um, half and half doesn't do it. You know, half and half, I've, I've always been a little skeptical of half and half ever since I learned out that, uh, learned that half and half is a quarter of the price as full cream. What's that tell you? You know, that, that uh, you know, either some, you know, half and half. It can't be half and half if it's a quarter of the price. It's got to be, I think it's like the weakest cream that is, it's like a quarter and a half. It's three quarters. I think they should call it three quarters. But anyways, I, I digress. Um, coffee. So I'm curious, where's the best coffee? Where, where do you get good coffee around here? Who can tell me? Colombia. Colombia. Yes. All right. Thank you. But... But we're here. Yes, yes. McDonald's. All right. Okay. I did not know that. That's, that's good to know. All right. Where? Oh, Colson. Colson Coffee. We have a coffee. Where is Colson? Yeah. You got your own coffee company. So, so besides yourself, if you're going to... If you're going to say, hey, let's meet for coffee, where would you like to go? I really like House Roots in Granada Hills. House Roots, Granada Hills. Interesting. All right. What about this area? Uh, man, Steeple House is just great. Steeple House is great. All right. So that's, uh, so Steeple House. Let's talk about Steeple House because this is pretty interesting to me. I, I go to Steeple House. I, I prefer just to you know, I don't know. Keurig is fine with me because I put so much cream that the coffee actually is the same color as the inside of the cup. If, if I can get that kind of beige color out of coffee. But anyways, um, uh, I like Steeple House. Uh, I, I, like, uh, I like Steeple House. I, I found it interesting that uh, I don't think it's on Yelp anymore because I think COVID, we kind of shut it down. But, but uh, it used to be on Yelp, and I used to like to read the reviews. It was quite amazing. The typical review for Steeple House was found from people in the area like, I really didn't want to go here. Uh, I, 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 you know, I read other reviews. I knew it was at a church. I didn't want to go there. Everybody around me looks like they walked out of a JCPenney catalog. Um, uh, but... I, I, I suppose I have to write a good review because the coffee was the best in the area. They reluctantly like just give it a great review. It was like it was like that same story over and over again. And the reason why I think of that is because uh, as great as Steeple House is, and as much as we uh, appreciate it, it's not really the main reason we are here. I read a story about a, uh, a church in Atlanta. Actually, it's not a church anymore. It's called the Church of God Grill. And I, it's in Atlanta. I read a story about a man named Charles Kahn who was there. He saw it advertised. He called it, and he wanted to know how they got their name. 
And the response was, we used to have a little mission down here, and they couldn't afford to, like, support themselves, so they started serving chicken dinners to help pay the bills. And people liked the chicken so much that we did such good business that eventually we, we had to cut back on the church services, and we just closed down the church altogether, and we still now we just serve chicken dinners, but we kept the name. <laughs> and so I thought about that, and I thought, you know, wow, I mean the main thing has got to be the main thing. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? I mean, this, this, is, this is important when you're looking at what is your mission. And as good as chicken is and as beneficial, I have nothing against chicken, I have nothing against coffee, but if, if Grace Church were only known for coffee, that would be a problem. And uh, the church in Corinth had this issue when it came to love because they were not focusing on love. They were focusing on things surrounding love. They were focusing on things like uh, the spiritual gifts, which if you are truly loving, you will practice spiritual gifts, but you'll practice them in the right way. Um, So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 13. We're looking at the final uh, five verses, final six verses, that is, verses 8 through 13. Uh, Read along with me as I begin in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, which says this. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face... Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So when we come to our our passage, which I'm excited to get into this passage, we've talked about it some in the past as we look forward to it, it's really an anchor passage for what comes before and what comes after because it helps describe a little bit about gifts and their temporary nature, but I've entitled this message, Never Failing Love or Perfect Love. And in verses uh, 8 through 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, we find three details about love that really should motivate us or remind you to prioritize love in the church. Three details about love, and the first one is the permanence of love, the permanence of love. Love is permanent. It never fails. Love never fails. And then he goes in and he says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now, there are three gifts that are mentioned here. There's prophecy, there are tongues, and there's the gift of knowledge. These are spiritual gifts, which he's already talked about back in chapter 12. He's made reference to them also in um, chapter 13, verse 2. Uh, At least, uh, yeah, verses 1 and 2, he he mentions these gifts. And he comes back to them now. uh, And I think it's important for us to just uh, define what these are. What is prophecy? What was the gift of prophecy or what is the gift of prophecy in the New Testament? Anyone remember? Sorry? The revelation of God. Now... I think we need to be careful with this because there are some gifts which are revelatory, which 
were given only to the early church and which ended when the canon was closed, when, when the 27 books of the New Testament were recognized and said, okay, there's no more, and uh, God has spoken, it's complete, it's sufficient, when the book of Revelation ended and says no one should add to this book. So, um, but, and, and we believe that there is no further revelation needed, nor is God giving further revelation today for the church. We have everything we need for life and godliness. But uh, if you look at the Old Testament, the word for prophecy in the Old Testament means to speak forth or to proclaim. It would include foretelling the future, but the overarching definition is really forthtelling, that is speaking forth the word of God. And I think we have this idea of of prophecy as like, oh, he's going to give us some prophecy, and it's always about the future. But prophecy was not always about the future. The, The Old Testament prophet did give some future events, typically. But his main job was speaking forth what the Lord Yahweh has said and oftentimes what he has already spoken, reminding the people. So he was speaking forth the word of God. A future prophecy was just an element of that. Um, And so uh, even in the New Testament, the same word, it can even be translated to speak publicly and is used that way sometimes in extra-biblical literature. Uh, Historically... This idea of foretelling the future didn't come to be so closely associated with the word prophecy until the Middle Ages. And so around the New Testament time, this word prophecy was equated with speaking forth the word of God. So a definition of the gift of prophecy would be the spirit-given or spirit-empowered ability to speak forth or proclaim the word of God effectively. And there's a great description of what this gift looks like in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. So skip down just a few verses. Take a look at 14, verse 3. It says, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. It's really fantastic there. And we'll look uh, at that when we get into chapter 14. But but just take a look at, at the definition, the description of what prophecy The one who prophesies speaks to men. So you're speaking to men. You're edifying them. That is, you're building them up. You're exhorting them. The word exhort is not this, I told you to do this. It really means to come alongside. And then you are also um, uh, consoling them, uh, comforting them with the word of God. So notice that even in that definition in chapter 14, we don't see anything about future visions or anything like that, even though many of the prophets in the Old Testament especially uh, and those who had the gift of prophecy in the New Testament often prophesied about future events. That was only a part of what they did. And therefore, uh, prophecy was not as flashy as some of the other revelatory gifts. Paul prizes prophecy because Paul prized teaching that built up the body, and he will see that in chapter 14. The 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 Corinthians prized flashier, showier gifts. Just like today, those who speak forth the word of God, and I I believe that there is uh, the gift of prophecy is still prevalent today in the church. Those who are teachers and preachers have the gift of being able to speak forth the word of God. And while we wouldn't call them prophets, the gift of speaking forth, the gift as it's described in chapter 14, uh, of 1 Corinthians verse 3, still exists today. Um, 
So we have this, this prophecy, and there are people today who are not impressed by Bible teaching. Another sermon about the Bible from the Bible, you know? And, 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 and you get people who are just like, this is not something that, is, that the world is enamored with. And unfortunately, a lot of churches who are trying to woo the world turn into places of entertainment or trying to use worldly techniques to get people into church, and they abandon or jettison or downplay the importance of speaking forth the word of God to the extent that sometimes when people do hear the word of God preached, it takes them a while to, to gain an appetite for that because the church today is, is somewhat emaciated, being fed often by uh, weak teaching uh, and, and entertainment. And so when they lose that entertainment, all of a sudden uh, they're, they're, they're like, uh, they haven't grown much because uh, they're still quite immature and now they're growing with meat. And they're like, oh, wow, you know. Um, so uh, what they were impressed with, though, were the, was the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues were the gift of languages. It was a supernatural ability to communicate truths of God in known languages that never previously learned. And we, we, we saw quite a bit about the gift of tongues in chapter 12. We talked about it, and we also talked about the fact that uh, in, in Acts uh, chapter 2, you have... Um, uh, the first couple of chapters of Acts, you have on the day of Pentecost, you have uh, people speaking in tongues. You have uh, 15 different countries, recognized nations, where people say, I hear them speaking in my own tongue. The word tongue means language. And every time it's used in the New Testament, it's not gibberish. It's not some sort of ecstatic speech, which is common today in some uh, charismatic circles <clears throat> and also in... Other religions, this ecstatic speech. I don't believe that what we see today that people call tongues is really the biblical gift of tongues because it's just a known language. We're going to talk more about that when we get in chapter 14 because he really goes in to talk about tongues and if you're going to practice tongues, how it <coughs> should be practiced. It was always done orderly, that is one at a time, this idea that everybody's going to speak gibberish at the same time, not biblical according to chapter 14. It was to be done with an interpreter and it was not something every believer possessed. Chapter 12, verse 10 talks about to one this, to another this. And it was a confirming gift. 1 Corinthians 14, 22 tells us that it was not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. It was one of those gifts that confirmed that, hey, what these people are saying is true. And you can imagine being from another country and hearing somebody proclaiming the wonders of God in your language, in your mother tongue, and that person has never learned it. And you're saying, how does he speak my language? What he speaks must be true. It was a confirming gift. But to everybody else, it meant nothing unless there was an interpreter, which is why interpretation was so important. So we have this supernatural ability to communicate truths in known languages, the gift of tongues. And then there's also the gift of knowledge. Also, I think a, a gift that today has been, the term has been hijacked, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's been used by uh, people incorrectly. Uh, and they say, okay, the word, I have a word of knowledge. God's given me a word of knowledge. And they're almost pretending to be psychics, right? There's someone here with lower back pain. And, and, and <laughs> amen? Yeah, there we go, over there. Uh, and, and, uh, and, sorry, did I say lower? I meant upper. Uh, you know, no, and God wants you to witness, yep, to a chiropractor, Okay. Or something like that. You know, I, I'm being a little facetious here, but, the, but you, you've, you've seen this kind of thing. It's a word of knowledge. Like, wow, how did he do that? Well, 
pretty good chance in a crowd this size there'll be somebody with lower back pain. Um, but the gift of knowledge was the ability to grasp the meaning of God's revelation. Um, we see that the gift of prophecy and knowledge must have worked together because back in 1 Corinthians 13, 2, he says, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I can remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And so we have these ideas of the gift of knowledge was somehow being able to grasp and understand revelation that had been given so that you could explain it clearly. It went hand in hand with the gift of prophecy. Now, uh, and I believe the gift of knowledge still exists today because, hey, there are people who are gifted in understanding the scripture and, and being able to explain it. And we have, we have commentaries, we have a wealth of resources from people with those gifts, those spirit-enabled gifts to explain things that an unregenerate person just cannot explain or comprehend. So let me uh, just pause there. I've defined these three gifts. Any questions about the definitions? All right. Great, let's move on. Because what's really, if you want to know the heart of any passage, you look for the verb. And these verbs where we learn about the permanence of love are amazing. Because there are three different verbs used here that all talk about stopping or ending. The first one is fails. Love never fails. Um, And then it says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, it will be done away with. That's another verb. If there are tongues, they will cease. And if there's knowledge, it will be done away. Same verb for prophecy. And what's interesting about the verbs, especially the latter two verbs, is that uh, the voice that they're in. And you say, oh, no, please don't go with English grammar. Yes, because amazingly, when Paul wrote inspired words of God, the words he chose actually teach us and they line up with theology surrounding those words. When we talk about the voice, one of these words is in the middle voice and two of them are in the passive voice. Okay, so the passive voice is somewhat easy for us, right? Because we, we learn the passive voice in English grammar. Johnny hit the ball. The subject does the action. Therefore, hit is active. It's an active verb. But if we say Johnny was hit by the ball, it's passive. He received the action. It's when the subject receives the action. Not too difficult, is it? So what's interesting is that we have these passive verbs, um, future passives, so something in the future will cause them to stop. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. That's a verb that is used for tongues. Tongues will cease in the middle voice. The key word for the middle voice is involvement. Some people think reflexive when they think middle voice, but it's not always reflexive, but it's always involving the person. You so here's an illustration. Let me try and do this just to, to illustrate this. Uh, if, you, if you have a Christmas tree and you've got a toy train going around it, okay, say that uh, somebody uh, placed a battery on the tracks. And um, if I said the toy train was stopped by a battery placed on the tracks, it's passive, Something happened to that train to cause it to stop. It didn't stop on its own. Somebody took a battery. It could be, I don't know, a car battery or or whatever, something to derail it. Just picture a battery stopping it. You've done something. It receives the action. It was stopped, okay? That's passive. 
But if I say about the same train that it was going around and the batteries ran out and it stopped, that's middle. The idea there is middle. All on its own, it stopped. It didn't need something to happen to it. It stopped. All right, think about this. And the way he, what he's saying is that when it comes to knowledge and when it comes to prophecy, something's going to happen that will cause them to stop. And that something is the perfect. Take a look in, in, in verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Same verb. Will be also in the passive. Okay? Something's going to happen. That something is the perfect. You say, what's the perfect? Well, we're going to talk about that. But, but right now, just know that something's going to happen. But when it comes to tongues, they will stop all on their own. Nothing needs to happen to stop them. He simply says they will cease, and that word means with finality. And so this is significant because historically tongues did cease, and they did stop all on their own. In fact, tongues are only mentioned in three books of the New Testament. The book of Acts, which is the early stages of the church, the book of the Gospel of Mark, and 1 Corinthians. Those are the only three books that we find the tongues in. Not only that, 12 after Corinthians, and he doesn't mention tongues at all. And so some people believe that there is evidence that tongues were even falling off the scene early on, even before the canon was closed, even before Paul finished writing and, and others finished writing. James never mentions the gift of tongues, nor did John or Jude. And so the latter books, if you look at a chronological chart of when the books were written, the latter books written latest never mention tongues. So, and certainly by the second century, tongues were not prevalent in the church at all. Chrysostom and Augustine, great theologians of the Eastern and Western churches in the years that followed shortly after the early church, both considered tongues to be obsolete. And in fact, during the first 500 years after the apostles, the only people who claimed to have spoken in tongues were the followers of uh, Montanus, um, who was branded a heretic according to Eusebius. And so you don't want to go back through church history and say, oh, tongues have been here all the time. We could find it in church history because every time it was found in in those first 1,000 years, 2,000 years, associated with false teaching and false teachers. Indeed, any group from the time of the apostles until the 20th century that claimed to speak in tongues were considered by the church to be unorthodox. According to the Dictionary of Pentecostal and Charismatic Movements, a dictionary which, which defines what's going on in those movements, which was supported by those movements, today did not begin until the year 1900 when the first reported, quote-unquote, tongues speaking of the 20th century took place in Topeka, Kansas, at Charles F. Parnham's Bible School. And somehow, in the early, 20, the early 1900s, the church started to accept tongues and today it's almost accepted as mainstream that what that is what we see happening in certain churches today is what happened in the early church but gifts like prophecy and knowledge were different according to paul because they were vital in the early church for understanding for building up for consoling people and they were essential for divine revelation and so um he he talks about these as though 
they were uh, differently than he does with tongues. So as we think about this, um, man, I have more I can say on that, but I, I, I want to move on. I, I might come back. Um, but any questions about what we've talked about? The main thing I want you to see there is that love, as compared to these other gifts, is permanent. Tongues will cease, and it, they did cease. And there's nothing in the word that means pause. And so uh, the idea that they ceased for 2,000 years and then all of a sudden came back on the, the scene, uh, it just seems not to go with, with what Paul was trying to say. Um, and his point that even knowledge and even prophecy, which exists today, they're also temporary as compared to love. Love is permanent. That's the statement he makes at the outset here. A second, um, a second detail about love that really should motivate us to prioritize love in the church is the perfection of love. The perfection of love. Verse 10 through 12. It says in verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. So now we get to verse 10 and we come to the active ingredient which causes prophecy and knowledge to stop passively, and that is the perfect. So the question is, what is the perfect? This is a sermon on the perfect. This is a perfect sermon, okay, in the sense that we're learning about the perfect. It's, it, 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 but I'm telling you, I have uh, spent, over the years, uh, this is not the first time I've taught on this, and my understanding of this has, has grown with this because there are good people who disagree with what the perfect is. And I, I'm settled now. I'm okay. But even this week, I was like, oh, man, I got to go. I got to go read about the perfect. And I am just got my nose in the books and just saying, okay, teach me. Teach me. Tell me. Show me. Convince me. Because I, 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 I have a place where, I've, where I stand. And when I was younger in the faith, when I was in seminary, I held a different position that good men also hold. But I, I really uh, need to be talked out of that now. So, but just to kind of open this up, what do, you, what do you think the perfect could be? As you read this, just, just as you open up your Bible and you say the perfect, what could he possibly be talking about? What do you think? Yes. Completion of the canon. It could be that when the canon is complete, that that's the perfect. Okay, what else? Our glorified bodies in heaven. heaven. Right, so when you die, you could be experiencing the perfect. Or some have compared it to, yes, the return of Christ. So there's the rapture. Uh, And let's just get this this in, in uh, in our mind properly. So we have uh, the church right now, and then we have the rapture where the church is taken up. Meanwhile, there are people in the church who are dying 
and who are going to be with the Lord. And, and, you know, Paul wrote about this. He was quite familiar with this. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, he says, For this we say to you, the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will arise first. And so what Paul was saying because the Thessalonians were worried because they thought, oh no, this person died before the rapture. And they were so looking forward to the return of Christ in the rapture that they actually um, uh, were, um, somebody died, thought they're going to miss heaven because now they don't get to go up. But he's saying, no, 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 no. Those who die now, uh, to be absent with, uh, to be with the, the Lord is to be, uh, absent from the bodies to be with the Lord, Paul taught as well. And so Although their body is down here, they will have glorified bodies that will meet them, that will go and be raised in the air. So graves will be open. If somebody tells you that the, the rapture has happened, you know, some you know, like college prank where all of a sudden there's like a trumpet outside and, you know, towels are on the floor and showers running and toothpaste in the sink and all this kind of stuff, right? So if, if that's going on and you think, just run down to any, uh, you know, Graveside. Go go to any kind of funeral home or, or what am I looking for? Uh, cemetery. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> cemetery. Uh, cemetery. Uh, go to any cemetery and you'll see if the graves, some of them are busted open and no bodies there. Yeah, you missed it. Um, but that's what that's what Paul is talking about. So it's going to have to be a real elaborate prank if it's going to work. Going to involve some digging. Um, but. Um, but when we think about this, just, just in our minds, so we have people who die now during the church age. The entire church is raptured at the end of the church age, and there's seven years of terrible tribulation, Revelation chapter 6 through 19. At the end of those seven years of tribulation, the Lord comes down on a white horse with the church and the saints of old, and they come down, and he establishes the Battle of Armageddon. He, he wins the rebellion. The tribulation period ends, and he establishes Satan's bound for a 1,000 years, <clears throat> the millennium, the reign of Christ here on the earth with those who are his. At the end of that is the great white throne judgment, and at the end of that judgment is actually a um, uh, new heavens and a new earth established here like we've never seen before. So that, that's, our, that's our mindset. We're thinking about Paul's theology and his understanding of future events. And uh, when we think about this, could the perfect be that rapture? Other possibilities is, is maybe it's the second coming. And when we talk about the second coming, we're not always talking about the rapture because there's a distinction. The rapture is where Christ comes and he's in the air. But the second coming is where after the tribulation, when Christ comes down and his feet actually touch down on the Mount of Olives. That's the second coming. And according to, to obviously Zechariah, the, the Mount of Olives splits in two. And you can go there today. It hasn't split in two, so we're not there yet. Um, but you have uh, this, this idea that it could be the second coming. It could be during the millennial kingdom. It could be the maturing of the church is another one. It could be the eternal state, and that's when some people say that the actual perfect, the perfect is the eternal state. Now, before we, we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about, about the meaning of this word, because the meaning of the word is translated. Does everybody have the word perfect in their translation, where it says verse 10, but when the perfect comes, are there any other words that your translations use? Okay. So the word is related to a Greek word, telos, okay? The transliteration, transcription would be 
T-E-L-O-S. We get the word telescope from it. And that root word we find in John 13, 1. Listen to John 13. At the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that word is telos. And it has more to do with quality than quantity. It's not that he loved them... Um, uh, he loved them to the nth degree. That's what it's more like than, than he loved them to the last day. He's not talking about the, the number of his days. This is at the washing of Jesus' feet. His days are not done yet. So it's not going to say he loved them to the end. He loved them as much as he possibly could love him. The word telos with a telescope is if you look as far as you can possibly see, that's how far he loved them. He loved them to the end to the nth degree, as much as he possibly could love them. So that's what this word at its root has this idea of. The word also is used, it could be translated as complete or mature. And I think those are probably better options for passage. Matthew 19.21, Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, some versions say perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So he tells this um, uh, this rich young ruler, if you, deserve, if you desire to be teleos, if you deserve to be perfect, but what he's saying there is complete. You're lacking something is what he's saying. In Ephesians 4.11, and we, I wish we could just spend more time in Ephesians 4 because there's so many, so many similarities between Ephesians 4 and 1 Corinthians 16. But listen to these verses. Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 13. And he himself gave some to be apostles some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I just got to point out some of these out. Paul's writing, and he's writing in Ephesians. And Ephesians 4, he's talking about uh, spiritual gifts. He's talking about the edification of the body. The church is a body. Love is prominent in its growth. Uh, Ephesians, 4, 4, Ephesians 4 also has an emphasis on unity. Um, there's the use of man, mature, and so we get this right here. It's identifying of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. Some versions again say perfect. Same word here. The measure of stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so we have this idea of complete, mature, perfect if you want to use it that, but, but more perfect in its idea of quality. And so when you look at the context of our passage and we see that Paul also uses this this antithesis or this illustration between a child and a man. Uh, It says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. But also there's a vivid description here of um, the... uh, this, this idea of not only maturity, but also clarity. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. When face to face? When the perfect comes. Do we see face to face now? And so for that reason, I don't think that we can say the perfect has come. I don't think it can be the closing of the canon. Um. If you say that it's the closing of the canon, you also have to say that the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge no longer exist today because the canon is closed. 
So I don't see the completion of the canon as the perfect. Um, Revelation 11 raises an issue. In Revelation 11, verse 3, it says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Revelation 11, verse 3, happens in that section about the tribulation, Revelation 6 through 19. And so if you're saying that prophecy ends at the time of the close of the canon, then you're going you're gonna to have a problem because there is prophecy during the tribulation period with these two witnesses who are prophesying on behalf of the Lord. Now, you can say that, well, maybe it, it closes for the church, and this is now, you know, these are tribulation saints. But I, I, I think that Paul's trying to make a point here, and his point is that love is permanent, and these other things are not. And so if prophecy ends, I think it's really going to end. So um, I think that's the same with the death of a believer who's ushered into Christ's presence and the rapture. Because if the rapture and death happen before the tribulation and prophecy still exists during the the tribulation because there are prophets in the time of the tribulation, then the gift, those things can't be the perfect. I also think that the second coming that brings in the millennial kingdom is problematic. I don't think that's the perfect because the second coming um, has this idea of um, that everything will be known and that we'll have this, uh, we'll have no need for knowledge, prophecy. And we talk about that time during the millennial kingdom and it seems like there are teachers and there are shepherds who are teaching during that time. Isaiah 29, 18, on that day, the deaf will hear words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Jeremiah 23, 4, I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing. Do you remember that during that thousand-year period, it it, it begins with the end of the tribulation. I know this is getting a little heady, but but, uh, hang with me here. We're going to try and get through this. So, So... Christ comes down, reigns for a thousand years. Those who survive the tribulation enter into it as humans. Those who are with him come down uh, glorified. And so we are here with Christ for a thousand year period. There are martyrs during the tribulation, 144,000 of them who have a special place. Jews, 144,000 have a special place in that millennial kingdom. And during that time, uh, there's a rebellion at the end. And people say, well, how is there a rebellion at the end if everybody in the kingdom begins as a believer because Christ has come down at Armageddon and, and, and sent away or killed all of his enemies? It's because there are humans there who have children, who have children, who have children, and they will, be need, they will have a need to be taught and learn and believe. And some of them will have hearts that are so hard that by the end of the thousand years, there will be a rebellion again against the Lord, even with the history of what he has done. Just like today, people rebel, even though there's the history of what God has done. How can there be a creator, right? All the nonsensical arguments that people have, um, their hearts are just hard. So we have um, the the, the, the second coming. There's also the maturing of the church. I'm okay with the definition of mature here. It, it either has to be mature or complete. Um, there is an element in which the church matures, but the fact that it actually comes to a, um, a complete knowledge 
shows me that it's a full maturity. And while the church is more mature than it was, say, when uh, in Corinth, we're still not there yet. And we still don't have that face-to-face. And that's the one, that, that's the phrase that just keeps, in this passage, keeps me coming back to saying that, get this, the perfect has to be when the eternal state begins. When there's that new heaven and the new earth. Revelation verses 22 through 24 describes this time. It says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. This is a time where we don't have anything to compare with this. People who say, well, I think heaven's going to be boring. I mean, I don't like hymns. I hope they're not singing hymns up there. You know, people who say things like that have no idea. It is going to be so other. And you start reading about this time where where, uh, we are just in the presence of God. The glory of the Lord is around us, so much so that we we don't have a need for the sun. And and I, I, I don't know how to describe it. I think about when you go by an accident, right? And people are saying, are we going to know people or what, you know, in heaven? I I think there's a a good chance that that you're going to know people. I mean, uh, Jesus was recognized by some uh, in his heavenly body, you know, his resurrected body. But anyways, I think that um, when you think about this future time, you know, you go by a horrific accident on the freeway. Everybody slows down. Why? They can't help but look. I mean, they're just, they're just, I mean, there's just something about it. Now, that's a bad example because the glory of the Lord is going to be so spectacular. I think that if we are able to recognize people, we're going to be like, you know, like, you know, like, like, yeah, I hear you. But we're so focused on something else, you know, but it'll be a good thing then. You know, it'll be like, it'll be like, uh, yeah, I'm listening to you, but can you believe this? Face to face. I have a complete knowledge of who... Look at the words in this passage. It says, Then I know fully, just as I also have been fully known. The way God knows you to that extent, I will know Him. How can that be? And let me tell you something. If God uh, is... If this, if this passage is reaching to your soul and you're asking yourself, I don't think I've ever truly trusted in God because I've always doubted, then repent this day. Your only hope is to trust in Christ who is the sacrifice who makes it possible. And we see the love of God demonstrated in a sacrificial death of his son who died and paid the price for you on the cross. And, and that's an amazing love. But God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and to be in the presence of that almighty God for all eternity will be so fantastic. It will be nothing else we can possibly imagine. The glory of God, the perfect. I can't imagine anything else more perfect than the new heavens and the new earth and being in the presence of God. And when I read about it, I can't even, I don't have anything to compare it with. So, even though love is not even mentioned in verses 10 through 12, I, th- I called it the perfection of love because the perfect comes. And so his love, there is, and if it's not perfect, is not there anymore. 
So we've seen the permanence of love. We've seen the perfection of love. Finally, verse 13, the preeminence of love. Paul changes here. He gives a new triad. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. When I talk about the preeminence of love, I mean, I mean it surpasses all others. Love is superior. It is preeminent. Because all other gifts are temporary. Also, Christian attributes are temporary like faith and hope. In the sense that faith is what? Faith is, is, is believing and yet you haven't, it hasn't become sight yet. But when it becomes sight, you're there. And hope is looking forward to that time. Listen to these passages, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well absent from the body and present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. But the implication is one day we will walk by sight. We'll be there. As the... As Horatio Spafford said, and Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. The Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He was taking the the, the troubles of this present world and he's comparing it and saying, my soul is well because of the future hope that I have. But even that hope becomes reality. Romans 8, 24, for we were saved in this hope. But a hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. And so the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing, and that main thing is love. And we see that love has to be the main thing because it is permanent, it is perfect, and it is preeminent. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Psalm 136. We have five minutes left. I've really just, just like creamed through this passage. Creamed through it. What questions do you have? I know there must be questions because every week, Somebody comes up afterwards with like the best question. And I'm like, why didn't you say that? Yes. The new covenant? As in the new covenant that Christ offered in, ushered in? So the verbs here are future, and this is after Christ has already ushered in the new covenant. So, uh, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't heard that. Yeah. My position before was maturity. I saw this as maturity, and I, 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 had this, um, I had this idea, which I still wrestle with, and that is that I think Paul uses this term, which is somewhat ambiguous, because I think from Paul's perspective, I'm not sure he understood everything that would happen. Now, we know he had direct revelation, because he said, I know in part, right? So I don't think he had full knowledge, and I think... Think about Paul's day. So if you're wrestling with, okay, let's just say, just for sake of argument, let's say that both the, all these gifts are, were actually revelatory gifts 
and that there is no gift of prophecy or gift of knowledge today. When did that end? A lot of people say, well, that ended with the close of the canon because there was no longer a need for that. But from Paul's perspective, he didn't know whether the canon would end first or the, ra- or the rapture would happen first. Because according to Paul's day, he had the, there was an imminent rapture. The rapture could happen at any moment. I think there's evidence for that in Scripture that he believed in his lifetime the rapture could happen. And so he doesn't say when the rapture happens. He doesn't say the eternal state. He doesn't say when the canon is closed. He says the perfect I think his point is not to teach us about eschatology. His point is to tell us that love is permanent and everything else that you're you're focusing on, Corinthians, is not. So I think he's saying however it ends, but I think he knows. I think he knows because, man, he's written so much else about the future. And I think he certainly would have had an understanding about glory. So that's why I, I no longer... Uh, hold that, but it, man, I was impressed with it. So one of my professors, Robert L. Thomas, wrote a little book and taught a class at the seminary on First Corinthians twelve through fourteen, and uh, has written a lot just on these three chapters. And so to go back, I mean, this week I pulled out his exegetical digest. I pulled out his book on it. I was, you know, I was just, I, I wanted to understand his reasoning. And but the thing that won me over is face to face. I don't have an understanding of maturity that is face-to-face without glory. Yes? Is face-to-face referring to seeing seeing Christ face-to-face? Well, I think it's this idea of, if you look at it, the question is, is is this referring to Christ? It says, um, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. And so I don't think, um, I, I think the emphasis more on a person is actually a thing. And there's something here with the, the, the neuter verbs and this idea that uh, it's got to be a thing. And what is the thing? And the thing is the perfect. And so if the perfect is a person, then it would be a masculine noun instead of a neuter noun. That's another issue with this passage um, for those who want to look that up. But I, 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 do, I, I think that... Uh, I don't think it's, it's necessarily seeing Christ face to face. Now, I think then it would be the rapture, and, uh, and then we still have the problem of, of prophecy existing after the rapture. Yes? Yeah. So it's Tim, right? So Tim, uh, when you think about eternity and the question is, does that scare you? Yes. The concept of it scares me. But you know what scares me more than that is a God who has a beginning. If the God, if, if the God we worship has a beginning, then something greater than him created. And we don't know the true God, the one who's revealed himself to us. And, and, and indeed he's misrepresented himself. And so uh, I, I am, from the word of God, I am compelled to trust that God is so bigger than I am. And my mind, even though, I mean, eternity, future, I have an easy time 
easier time thinking about than an eternity past. Eternity past, eternity future, I just think, well, that's, that's just keep on singing forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Just keep on going, right? Uh, but eternity past is like, you know. But, but uh, the alternative is that uh, no one plus nothing equals everything. I, I, I have more faith in the word of God, which I have spent my entire life trying to study and see and understand. I have more faith in it than one of my fellow human beings who's fallible and has this idea that, oh yeah, there was a big bang. So I, I, I just, I, it doesn't go far back enough for me. Well, where did it come from? Right. All right, yeah. Does the complete knowledge of God mean incomprehensible? No, I think that we can have. And I think that's what the gift of knowledge is for. And I think to remember, the gift of, these gifts were like people had different measures of it. And so I think every believer has a certain measure of knowledge, of being able to understand the word of God in a way that an unbeliever can't. So, um, so it's not completely incomprehensible. But I think it is so other, there's so, it's just such a small taste of what is really going to be there that I think it's enough of a taste. But yeah, I, I don't have a complete knowledge for sure. The, the, I still am blown away from this passage that it says, I will know him as I have been fully known. When you read about God and how well he knows me, how is it that I know? Yeah, last question. Yeah, so the question is, do we learn for eternity? Uh, I suppose you need to define learn. I mean, one thing, and, 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 and maybe a good way to I think that we will fully know his love for all eternity. I, I think we will fully know his love. Um, so, and I, I, I think we will forever be enamored with who he is. Whether that's a learning experience or, uh, I mean, some, somehow you can say, well, it, it has to be a learning experience because you're, you keep on doing it and it's new. But uh, it's different from, I think, certainly different from the gift of knowledge or the gift of prophecy. If the gift of prophecy is forthtelling his word to people with his message for them and the gift of knowledge is helping them understand that message, I can understand that those will stop. All right? To say that learning... Yeah, I, I, I think that might be more than this text is saying. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, again for this time. You are an amazing God. We give thanks to you, the God of heaven, and we are thankful that your love endures forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.